and welcome to the very latest of the Marathon Bet podcast. Myself, Danny Kelly and Simon Jordan, former Crystal Palace owner and chairman these days, Britain's leading football pundit and author, he will tell you as well, where we've been doing the seven deadly sins of football. This is the seventh one. Don't worry, there's three more in the series. We're going to have to make up new sins that God didn't think about when he was inventing football or when she was inventing football. Who knows? Welcome aboard, Simon. Listen, Dad, I don't think we're going to have a problem finding three other sins, though. No, no, we are not. No, we, we, we question is what ones we can we leave out yes, indeed. Um, but we're taking on the traditional seven sins today and we've left it till last and it's the sin of gluttony now gluttony is defined in the dictionary initially in old dictionaries it was somebody who had an over indulgence and taste for food but then it became food and drink and now it means almost anything where people have a propensity to indulge themselves too much got to be careful here in two ways one i'm a person in a greenhouse throwing stones and two we're going to start by talking about drink simon sure. and the effect that alcohol has in the game of football particularly in this country i'll make this caveat before we start we will be talking about it sometimes very seriously and sometimes quite light-heartedly that is not to not recognize the fact that some of the people we're talking about national heroes some of yep. them have got genuine illnesses and problems. It turns out they weren't just heavy drinkers, but they were addicted to alcohol, sure. uh, alcoholics. We'll talk about that. I mean, so bear with us when we get to those tones. We were casting a young James Corden. Uh, what we'll do is we'll take him down to the training ground. This was your idea, was it? This was my idea. I'll tell you what we'll do with you, James. You're too large. So what we'll do is we'll send you off to Palace. You can run with the players. You can train with the academy squad. And there was just this moment in the room where everyone said, he's an actor, not an athlete. You can't send him off to be trained at Palace's football ground. James did lose some weight, but then came on set and in-film catering kicked in and he seemed to have <laughs> lost all the regard for keeping the weight off. I talked to Alan Hudson, the former England midfielder, yep. who told me Stoke he Chelsea. once played for Stoke City, drunk against Arsenal, played really well, but Arsenal bought him the following week. And I just remember saying to Kieran Dyer, I know you're chairman, so watch yourselves. That didn't seem to dissuade them because five hours later I'm walking back through the door with the doorman going, you'll never guess what's gone on upstairs. The reason why I decided to start with drink rather than consumption of uh, goods or consumption of food was because this week in football, we've had what I thought we'd seen the back of, Simon. The Derby County players have resulted in arrests, an injury that I think is probably the end of Richard Keogh's career. I wish him luck, but at his age, and we've seen the photographs of his leg now, it doesn't seem very likely that he'll play again. Were you shocked like me? I, I thought this had all gone out no. of the game. As you said at the top of this broadcast, you know, just because we say something to lighten the subject doesn't mean we'll be taking the subject lightly. Yes. But no, I'm not. I'm not surprised. I think there's still a culture that exists in football that is, and I'm going to say it, and it's not going to be particularly well received. I think it mainly is amongst English players. And it's no surprise to me that the players caught up in this. It's widening out to British and Irish players. Yeah, British and Irish. Okay, well, I'm English speaking. Sorry, you know, I should be slightly more expansive. I consider British players, all British players, to be part of that. Because of Keogh in particular. No, no, absolutely right. But no, it doesn't surprise me because I still think that there is a culture within the confines of football that isn't fundamentally respectful of the opportunities, the environment, and the element of professionalism that's required to be an elite footballer now. I think it's less and less. I think if we go back to the days of drinking cultures in certain clubs, 
and you can specifically talk about the clearing out of Manchester United, you know, with the Paul McGraths and other people that were part of it, Norman Whitesides and Brian Robsons that yeah. were very heavy drinkers. The and Monday had, Club at Arsenal. Yeah. The carry on with Spurs is great team yeah. in the 60s, which I'll talk about in a minute. Absolutely. And ultimately, I, I've always thought it came down to some of these people having a little bit too much free time on their hands. But I also think it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing in our society. So it's no surprise to me that it pervades our sports and our national sports. So whilst I'm not surprised, I would imagine, knowing Mel Morris as I do, he's going to be a very disappointed Derby counter owner. And I can imagine, knowing Philip Koku and knowing his assistant, Chris van der Verden, what they must be making of this, because they won't be used to this sort of culture. They come from a different background. And without doing that tabloid trick of saying, oh, it's terrible and nobody should be repeating the details and then repeating the details, yeah. I think it's worth repeating the details just because it's such a shocking series of events. The Derby County players go out for a team bonding meal. And of course, uh, well, and you're... Uh, Eyebrow uh, straight uh, up, yeah. You are, you're rolling your eyes straight yeah. away. Um, we'll come on to that in just a second. And then most of them go home, at, you know, a reasonable hour. And these are the senior players. Keogh is the club captain. Tom Huddleston is there. He's the newly senior, appointed senior team player. captain. Senior player. One of your lot quite. Yeah, Spurs, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, of course, the player has been accused of being overweight in the past, so mm-hmm. gluttony may be one of his issues as well. Sure. They repair to a pub where somebody at the club must have kept an eye on them because at some stage, taxis are sent from the club to the players, and they decide not to take those. They send those away as mm. well, and it results in... People who are, I can't say it's because it's got under the law now, who were certainly had been drinking. I don't think there's much doubt that they were over the limit. I mean, driving, getting involved in a crash, which leaves Keogh unconscious in the back of the car with his legs split open. As we understand the sequence of events, the other two go off to a flat then, then realise they've left him behind, go back to find the police hunched over the unconscious body of their teammate. During the course of this, one of them has been sick before this in the pub, in the urinal, and Tom Huddleston has seen fit to take photographs of it. If these were pop stars, or if these were teenagers on on whatever the current equivalent of an 1830 holiday is, there would be uproar, absolute uproar. The problem is, Danny, is that you see this situation, and whilst these are young men, and it's very difficult sometimes for them to avoid the reality of what young people do. Young people go out, they swing their pants, they have a good time, they enjoy themselves. You've done it, I've done it. I've done it infinite times. The fortunate thing for these young men is they've chosen a fabulous career and I don't go to the territory of saying everyone would love to do what they do because with respect to footballers, having employed them, I know that after a while they see it as a job. So when you see something as a job, everyone else will see you as the luckiest person in the world, but you'll see it as a job because it's something you do every single day. It's something you become acclimatized to. Now back out of that and reverse to the original sentiment, they have chosen a fantastic career, which is a short career. You listen to Gordon Taylor and anyone else that will tell you yeah. that players still need testimonials. It is a short career. They have to respect the boundaries of what is right and proper for them as supreme athletes to want to indulge themselves in. You know, you don't see sprinters. You don't see tennis players. I know you can see rugby players, and that's a mm-hmm. cultural thing as well. Even but, that's changing, I presume. But that's changing now, because if you look at the composition of an English rugby player now, you and even English cricketers, you can't see the kind of nature of outside world, outside life, influencing their physical conditionality for the sport that they perform in. And I look at it and just say that they have a choice to make, and it's so ridiculous that they put themselves in the way of this kind of circumstance. There's nothing wrong with being young. But then you see pictures of Jack Grealish two years ago 
laying in the street. You see pictures of Deli Alley being helped off sun loungers on their holidays. Granted, they're on a break. But where's Deli Alley's career at this moment in time? Not on a, the up. In a grey area, yeah. And there was no place, I think, in modern sports now for the supreme athletes to be going into this sort of area of gluttony, abuse, not looking after themselves, not being responsible, and downright stupidity. The most striking interview I've ever done about this was, you'll be surprised by the next time I'm going to say, was with Harry Redknapp. Mm-hmm. Harry, of course, came absolutely out of the... He was front and centre in that culture that existed in the clubs in the 1960s and 70s when he played his football. He was a peripheral part, not one of the stars, he tells me, of... Bobby Moore's drinking mm-hmm. gang. Bobby had a pub uh, in Stratford called the Two Puddings, I think it was called. And that was the centre of, of, of the drinking of that gang. And Harry will admit he was a great believer in these, right, we've got beat 4-0 away from Rome. I think we should all go and have a, a massive ooze up yeah. after all the rest of it. More recently, he may well have been even in that West Ham team that famously went to Blackpool on a boxing day uh, after, after a Christmas fixture and got beat by about eight. He said to me now he's absolutely against them having any drink at all, not even the famous glass of wine with your pasta. His argument to the young players now is wait till you're 33 and then you can drink till you go blue in the face if you want to. I was surprised because, uh, I mean, you would have thought that Harry would never have come round given his own background to that point of view. But that's where he's arrived at. Well, I think probably conventional wisdom and what's going on in the game and the introduction of a whole raft of foreign coaching, overseas thinking, overseas players and the enhancement of the Premier League has made it undeniable. The evidence is irrefutable. Interesting that he has that because I do remember some funny stories I might tell later on about his number two, Jim Smith, and how they work together. So if we get into that later on, I'll tell you a little story about Jim Smith and Paul Merson. Uh, Yeah, and uh, I think I can answer with Jim Smith and Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh We shouldn't be picking on the Derby County players as though they were... Isolated. And pariahs because... We have, to some extent, we've created an atmosphere in this country where we praise this kind of excess, this kind of gluttony. When you think about Arsenal's players, famously, before Wenger got there, Paul Merson doing his drinking celebration, everyone loved that. And yet, it turns out Paul Merson has real problems. I know you didn't like Paul Gascoigne's dentist chair thing because you think he was celebrating a kind yeah. of piece of miscreancy, but people loved that after his goal against Scotland, didn't they? They thought it was great. Jimmy Greaves was my boyhood hero. And Fabulous Jimmy, player. Yeah, and if you read... Let me go off on one here. You read Jimmy Greaves' autobiography, ironically called This One's On Me, where... I've read it. Yep, he wakes up... The bit where there's no more drink left in the house, yeah. and he takes the empty vodka bottles out of the bin and holds them out in the rain in the hope that he'll get some residue. I mean, I don't know how low human beings can go, and I've talked to him about this. And yet Greaves, when I was talking to Dave Mackay, his club captain at Spurs in the 60s, he said that Dave's attitude was, God bless him, no longer with us, Jimmy wasn't alcoholic. He just was no good at drinking. You should have seen the rest of us. There was a pub in the Spurs administrative offices. There was a pub built to the corner of that building. So they weren't even off the premises. Finished training, into the boozer, Mackay on the bar, whacking them back, demanding everyone else does the same. We have celebrated our footballers being drinkers for decades and decades. So it's no surprise, really, that the younger players should still think there's a residue. I mean, Alan Hudson. I talked to Alan Hudson, the former England midfielder, yep. who told me Stoke he Chelsea, once yeah. played for Stoke City, drunk against Arsenal, played really well, but Arsenal bought him the following week. I mean, it's just incredible how yeah, deep it I mean, was in our game. Talking about... The attitude of sportsmen. One of the things that I look back on with a great deal of disdain, and it was the England 
cricket team of 2005. Uh-huh. And, the, and the, the fabulous achievement of winning the Ashes. Regaining the Ashes off but all we, those years. they rocked up to number 10, all of them drunk, and all of them in a dishevelled state. And that, to me, said a lot about the state of our cricket at that particular time. No criticism implied of the performance of the team. No criticism of Michael Vaughan as a captain, because I think he's a fabulous England captain. But when I saw Kevin Peterson and Freddie Flintoff bowling out of number 10 with their jackets and shirts hanging out and obviously worse for wear, I didn't understand that. Look, Simon, we don't want to appear as two old curmudgeons here. We don't want to be the Statler and Waldorf of podcasting. No. Um, that's one for the teenagers. But I want to discuss the wider society that we live in. Now, look, I worked in the music business for 20 years, right, 25 years. So I was out every single night in Soho, every weeknight yeah. for 15 years. My average time of going home was half two. So you can imagine the state yeah, I was saw in. Yeah. So I've got no room to throw any stones here. It's increasingly become clear to me as I've grown older that... British society, almost everything revolves around some form of gluttony, but particularly this gluttony for alcohol. Yep. I'll give you two examples of my main, and I'll ask you why you think we're like this or if I'm overreacting. My missus is a literary journalist, moves in very posh circles, people discussing... I know you're uh, Alex, just, yep. yeah. She's wonderful, and, uh, but she moves in very posh circles, and they're always going out for dinner together, writers and agents and all the rest of it. But dinner lasts from 6 o'clock in the evening till 3 o'clock in the morning. I often say to her, by dinner you mean you're going out for a load of drink, which will be interspersed when the posh fish finger stacks arrive and, and all that. And that's what it is. I also went to the Grand National this year for Talk Sport. And as the afternoon unfolded, first of all, let me tell you, I had a brilliant time there. I'm not interested in horse racing. I don't drink very much these days. I had a brilliant time because everybody was having such a brilliant time. But a lot of it was based around how much mm. champagne and cocktails Derby's people could the same. cut away. I've been to the Derby a couple yeah. of times. It's exactly the same. I mean, it strikes me that I'm really struggling, unless there are events that I've missed out on, to think of any event that doesn't seem to revolve around getting the... Uh, Go to boxing. Go to boxing. It's not so much... I've seen a lot of the world title fights around the world and been in America, but the culture... Last fight I went to was Anthony Joshua versus Joshua Parker in Cardiff. And more people were being thrown out for being drunk before the fight than I've ever seen in a sporting event before. (laughs) I'm like, hang on a second, the fight's in the ring. You wait for that opportunity before you get yourself thrown out for drink. I just think it's part and parcel of our society and our culture. Interesting talking about gluttony. I was making a film a few years ago, completely off-piste. That's good. With Kevin Spacey and, and Nick Moran and a bunch of people. And we, we were casting a young James Corden. And James was a little bit rotund, a little bit over the weight. And he was going to play a very famous drummer called Clem Catini, who you probably mm, heard of. Sure. And Clem became known as musical Clem because he became a youth team coach at Arsenal. But I think he played on 50 number ones. And Clem was quite big. But James was much, much bigger. And I, as the producer and the funder, had this brainwave that this actor that was just about to break out on Gavin and Stacey, just about to make a big film called Gulliver's Travels with Jack Black and go and dominate a lot of television of the time, needed to go and train. Before hired for this film, go and train with Palace. And go and train. What we'll do is we'll take him down to the training ground. This was your idea, wasn't it? This was my idea. And there was this (laughs) just absolute silence in the room because he was doing a read-through of Kevin Spacey and Con O'Neill, who was the lead actor in this film, Telstar, and Con's a fabulous actor from the stage play Blood Brothers. And everyone stopped. And I said, I'll tell you what we'll do with you, James. You're too large. So what we'll do is we'll send you off to Palace. You can run with the players. You can train with the Academy squad. And there was just this moment in the room where everyone said, he's an actor, not an athlete. You can't send him off to be trained at Palace's football ground. James did lose some weight, but then came on set and in film catering kicked in and he seemed to have <laughs> lost all the regard for uh, keeping the weight off. I want to say something else now here that uh, 
I guess we pride ourselves on this podcast, and I hope it's not mistaken pride or misplaced pride, that we will say what needs to be said. And, you know... Be authentic, uh, I think, yeah, is the word. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. It strikes me, though, that the thing that never gets spoken about, and we have to be careful here, uh, it's not necessarily an attractive thing, but when I see stories about footballers, Premier League footballers, Championship footballers, League One footballers, getting involved late at night in what always getting described as drunken escapades. Simon, you probably know more about this than me, and I hope you understand why I say Watch that. It. Um, yeah, uh, it strikes me that 99% of the venues, what they're there for is not really drink. The drink is incidental to, frankly, chasing women. Possibly. I mean, I was living in the Grosvenor on Park Lane for, posh hotel for, for, for 10 everybody. years. Yeah, Grosvenor outside hotel outside Simon's Lane. bubble. Yeah, I, I lived there for a variety of reasons, but... If you can live in a hotel, why wouldn't you? And I was there one night when yeah. all of the Newcastle players were in there at the time. I think Kieran Dyer was in there. I'm trying to think of the centre-back that played for them. I can't remember his name now. And also Carton Cole was there and a few other people. And I just remember walking out and saying to the players on the way out, because they were all getting drunk and having a good time. It was a Friday evening. They must have been an international week or something. They were, sure. they were off for some reason or another. And I just remember saying to Kieran Dyer, I know you're chairman, so watch yourselves. That didn't seem to dissuade them because five hours later, I'm walking back through the door with the doorman going, you'll never guess what's going on upstairs. Absolute murder, orgies, all kinds of stuff going on. So, you know, you look at the behaviour and attitude and outlook of the culture that we live in and young footballers and what they're exposed to and how they operate. And those sort of things often are prevalent. And it goes to your point because the orgy centred around young men's pursuits of yeah, young women. And they have the societal power of saying, I'm a footballer, which translates to... Titus I'm- Bramble. Um, yeah, Titus Bramble. Titus Bramble. Looked like a big baby, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I'd have said that to him. Not to his face, yeah. no, no. Uh, not the greatest footballer, Titus Bramble, no. by the end of his career. No, but, no, but, absolutely not. But got his, he's got his under-21 caps and all the rest of it. And just before people think we're picking on young people and footballers, this is connected to football. I can remember being in Charlois in Belgium for the 2000 European Championships and staying in quite a nice hotel. Um, Keegan. British businessmen literally whistling up girls in the public bar all evening in the night before the match. Just literally, mobile phones are, you know, were in then and just demanding the numbers behind the bar for these various I things. I mean, I will give a converse story to, to the players and the way that they behave. I remember a publicist telling me a story about girls phoning him up and saying, I'm in such and such a bar and there's such and such a player here or players here. If I slept with one of these players which would be worth the most money for me to sell a story on. So there is an element oh, of uh, no. targeting and cynicism around young players and players full stop that they have to be more mindful of. They have to be mindful of. And I think they are becoming much more aware of their presence in society. I don't know how far we want to go diving here. And perhaps it's a story of redemption as well. I'm watching the American football last night and one of the pundits is a man dressed in amazing purple clothes, really looking like a a million dollars. This man called Michael Irvin, who was a wide receiver with the Dallas Cowboys back in the day, when the last time indeed that they got anywhere near winning a trophy, despite being the Manchester United of American football. Mm -hmm. The American footballers in the Dallas Cowboys at this time, their appetite for women had become such that what they did was they bought a property adjoining their training ground Turned it into a chicken and house. Turned it into chicken ranch. Whatever you like, whatever the current phrase is. In fact, the building was bright white, so they all referred to it as you're going to the White House tonight. Okay. And I remember when the police finally got this place and raided it, 
Michael Irvin, and I hope uh, I hope I haven't got this wrong. I haven't. Michael Irvin. I'm, I remember the picture of him being arrested in a full-length wolfskin coat. It was an extraordinary picture of indulgence, gluttony, over self-regard. He's made a comeback, though. He's, he's these days one of the leading pundits mm-hmm. on one of the American TV networks. I think we should move on from this time. Frankly, before anybody else yeah, gets started. Yeah, trouble, yeah. Yeah, or oh, your life story comes up. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't know. want that. I don't know which. <laughs> Talk to me about the other kind of gluttony, food. I think it's, first of all, the person who is credited with changing all this, and I think deserves a great deal of the credit for it, is Arsene Wenger. He comes to Arsenal. He does two things, if you remember. One, he changed their diet and all the rest of it. Two, and you can go and check the records, he gets rid of a load of players who he believes international players who he believes is their lifestyle is not conducive and I don't want to go any more deeper than that conducive to being a top class footballer anymore I think yes that there was definitely a sea change I mean I went to London Colney on a number of occasions and was party to buying some Arsenal players and having to put bags over my feet whilst I walked around their hallowed training ground in their hydrotherapy areas. Did they really make you put bags on your feet? Yeah, they did, yeah, blue bags, yeah. <laughs> and and it, it didn't stop David Dean from removing my wallet at yeah. the first available opportunity. They gave you a bag and yeah, took your wallet. Yeah. Taking my pants down, yeah. Um, but I do think there is an element of, yes, I do think with rehabilitation and professionalism that Wenger was very central to that. And obviously with the culture... And a well-known culture at certain times of some of the Arsenal players that it was a big departure, a big sea change, not just from the point of view of the way that Arsenal played, but also the way that they prepared and the type of players that they were trying to produce. I also think, in fairness, if you look back at Ferguson's reign at Manchester United, he took on a culture like to drink himself, Alex, you know, yeah. drank a bottle of my scotch after drawing nil-nil in a, in a very important game when Man United played us in the Premier League and proceeded to drink an entire bottle of scotch in my ballroom, renouncing his players as they ruined my effing weekend. They can sit on a coach outside whilst I ruin theirs. You've got to love him yeah, for that, though. Absolutely, you? absolutely. It was good scotch as well. But I think Ferguson was at the front of, you know, if you look at that group of players that came through the class of 92 and what he had from that class of 92, there was a cultural thing that he wanted young players that had a different dynamic different attitude, different sense of responsibility. So you could almost say that Ferguson had an approach to football that was slightly different from Ron Atkinson had at Man United and Man United Mm. being still, despite its lack of achievements at that time for 15, 20 years, still perceived to be one of the biggest clubs in English football. And then you bring Wenger in and what was so different about Wenger was the look of this man, yeah, the professor, the studious nature of his approach, his method of delivery, the way that he spoke to the media, the nature of his of his vocabulary, and then of course his intensity to what now has become dated thinking because everything evolves, but the basic principles of how football players should eat, what they should eat, when they should eat what they should hear, when they should hear it, how they should be insulated from things that are not positive, and so on and so forth. So I think ultimately someone like Wenger was a sea change and a real shock, and dare I say it, a real shock to the Harry Redknapps of the world that sat there with their racing post. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. And I think it really changed. It coincided with the huge reboot of English football, the huge wealth that was coming in that was beginning to get bigger and bigger, 
Premier League deal on Premier League deal, the gluttonous pursuit of more money for these football Which clubs. We've covered it in about six different ways. We have on indeed. These programs, we have I think indeed. it's right. So Wenger was absolutely a lightning rod for that. A couple of things that occurred to me that we should mention about, since you mentioned Alex Ferguson then, and you wanted to talk about Jim Smith. I mean, I actually think that football managers, the old school football managers, we look at what happened to my great hero in life, Brian Clough. I mean, he was consumed yeah. Yeah. by the drink, absolutely yeah. consumed by it. But you can understand it to some extent the pressure those people are under. I mean, we understand, we know that the biggest abusers of drugs in British society are doctors. They're under pressure. They have yeah. access to it. Boom. Football managers in those days worked three hours a day yeah. and then the rest of the day. And we saw what happened to poor old Brian. But Jim Smith, we think it's fair to say, yeah. you know, he liked to drink. So the great joke was when he was, remember when he was appointed assistant manager to Ferguson at Manchester United? And people said, that's because he knows how to open a wine bottle. <laughs> I don't know how true that was, but that, that was one of those things. But more interestingly, since we're talking about gluttony, when Martin Yoll was managing one of the smaller clubs in Holland very well before he got the job at Spurs, he was interviewed to be, this, uh, you know, because Ferguson was always changing assistant yeah, manager. Yeah. He was keep interviewed it, at it Old fresh, Trafford. Yeah. For the job, and one of the reasons that it came back to him, the feedback came back to him that he didn't get the gig, was that Alex Ferguson thought that he was too rotund, yeah. and it was going to give a bad impression to the players he was trying to manage. We've had this come out recently, haven't we? We've had this come out with David Unsworth at Everton, with that buffoon Joey Barton talking about his shape and the fact that uh, you know he wasn't in a physical condition. We've got people querying my friend Stevie Bruce's conditionality. We've got Steve Evans. Yep. that's managing further down the pyramid that operates at a certain level of physicality. I have mixed emotions about it because I think that there is an element of football management's changed. I do think that it's appropriate if you're in a sporting business to kind of be in the best physical condition that you can be. This doesn't extend to broadcasters, surely? No, of course not. Okay, thank no, you. of course yeah. not. I do subscribe to the view, Danny, that don't do as I do, do as I say mentality because ultimately if you're in a position of authority, it should be because you've earned that position of authority by the things that you've done. But I also believe that in a professional sport, there's an element of appropriacy about being in the best physical condition now couple that with the nature of how sports is evolving and how it's becoming more about thinking and strategy and the coaches are becoming you know the number twos and the coaches are becoming probably on the training ground more influential and able to put on sessions rather than the manager you know you've got John Terry mm-hmm. at Aston Villa and I suspect we can go for you've got Mikel Arteta at Man City. You've got this young generation. You've always had ex-Arsenal players as being a number two, whether it's Pat Rice or whether it's Steve Bold, whoever else it was at Arsenal. These guys, that I find myself conflicted in thinking, should it be that you're in a physical condition that represents a sport that you're managing? Or should it be the fact that you are really there for what you know and really there for the example of what you're imparting to these people and the man management skills and that shouldn't really be about your physicality but I do find myself looking well, at Stevie Bruce example I give you sorry we'll come no, you go, Bruce. You go, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean I look at American football the number one coach Bill Belichick is a comfortably shaped man Andy Reid has been at the very top of that sport for 20 years and he is nothing short of rotund the Ryan brothers are the best uh, offensive coaches and all the rest of it it doesn't seem to worry anybody in America obviously enough I just think it's a different sport though Dan I think there's more strategy and thinking behind that and these figureheads I mean I, I think Vince Lombardi was a big man you know you look back across that pantheon of people but I just feel that you know I know Steve Bruce and going into him I know that he will say himself I've got some timber on Mm. so he's aware of it and I think sometimes there is a solace to be taken for football management in being a certain in a certain condition because they need respite they think they need respite I find myself having a 
difficulties despite liking certain people and Steve Bruce being one of them about pressure because I think pressure is to some extent something you put on yourself and I've seen people under pressure I've been under pressure I lost the football club and a lot of things that went with it and that was real pressure football managers getting paid 10 million pounds a year and then getting paid to fail isn't really the kind of pressure that I equate to pressure that I've seen people not being able to put food on their table for their families and not being able to get jobs that's real pressure. It is. That is Football real managers pressure. not getting their way or getting paid to leave because fans have booed them out of a job, to me, isn't really pressure. This is a question I haven't even prepared with you, so, and we're going at the deep end here. Another kind of self-abuse, if you like, a gluttony, if you want. Are you amazed at how few footballers in Britain fail drug tests? Given, given their age, their spending, their wage strass they exist in and the amount of spare time they have. Um, am I amazed at how few yeah. fail them? Depends if you're Rio Ferdinand you don't take it in the first place. Am I amazed? No, I'm not amazed because, look, I can remember back in the day, Mark Bosnich and his situation, and there was a wicked rumour going round that actually, I'll be careful here, yeah, be a careful. wicked rumour going round that actually the agent informed Chelsea of the nature of Mark Bosnich's activities and potentially when the time was to test him. The tests that I've had, I've never had a player, and we had them regularly, being tested and subsequently failed. I think that recreational drugs will be within the confines of football in the same that homosexuality will be represented inside football and we don't see the numbers coming out for the statistics on that. I just don't know if footballers have got incredibly, incredibly lucky with the attitude that they have or simply that they are more aware of their obligations and they go for more traditional recreational habits legal, which, are, which are booze yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you're right yeah. I hope me you're right too. for their sake you know yeah, me too. Um, again I don't want to be a hypocrite these things exist in our yep. society yep. but I'm, I'm always amazed at how if you told me there is X group of young people young men in this case they earn this and they go to these places yep. for their recreation you just think well automatically you'd think that they were taking drugs but uh, but I think a, I think footballers are lemons and by, I don't mean lemons, I mean <laughs> lemons. I think that some of them are lemons. But I think the lemons, they follow one another. That's why they're all covered head to foot in tattoos in this day and age, because there's a culture that they follow. And I don't think that the foreign players that come into our football are really interested in recreational drugs or really interested in being anything other. I had Scandinavian players and the difference between the Scandies and the English players was markedly different. Mikel Fussell played for Chelsea, yeah, played for Borussia Munch and Gladbach, played for Palace. Different animal, different outlook, different disposition, different response to managers, owners, completely different dynamic. And I think that ultimately there is an element of perhaps there is a culture of slightly more upright thinking and balanced perspective about the sport. Now, of course, that's being defied by the Derby County players and what they've done or allegedly have done in their circumstances. But I just think that recreational drugs aren't as big a deal inside sports as people might think they are because we've got young harem scarum footballers that have got a lot of money. Right, OK. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the next step then. And this is going somewhere completely unrehearsed now, which is Go OK. On. Have you ever been advised or made aware of or been told that your players should be on performance-enhancing drugs? So not recreational. We've seen the scandals in Italy with, I mean, yeah. again, n not many players, but some players, and a constant, you know, as soon as any team gets good at pressing the ball, the supporters of another team will say, oh, they're on it now, they're all on the Do gear. Do they really, Tan? I, yes. don't, I don't see that. I've never really, I've seen it a lot in other sports. 
And I just think that this... Cycling, athletics, yeah, of absolutely. Course, boxing even, because we see that yeah. re- recently with certain fighters being well, called Well, it's almost up. impossible to fail enough drug tests. Yeah. You'll still get a licence. Absolutely. Incredible. But I, I don't know if football lends itself to that kind of steroid-based or performance-enhancing drugs because I think it's a different kind of sport. I think that's where it's extraordinarily lucky yeah. because in, we've seen it in... Uh, explosive sports like yeah. sprinting where you need to yeah. we've seen it in endurance sports like cycling but, yeah. but, Football but is a bit football's of both. a mixture of it's both, it, both. Doesn't qu- it doesn't That's quite right. fall it doesn't into the right in between which the is pure luck yeah. but thank God for that but in some I, ways but I also think maybe Danny because of the nature of sport football because players are playing 50-60 games a season there is so much opportunity for them to be under the microscope because they could be tested at any given time at any given game right? so playing 50-60 games playing a game a week every week is going to take them into a situation where even the most stupid and gormless of players, and there's quite a few of them about, would probably not put themselves in a way of real, real risk. I mean, I can't think of a player in recent times that's been banned for recreational drugs. Can you think of one? No. I'm sure there is one, but I can't think of one. Just because of young people's health, and again, I'm not going to be a hypocrite, I think about what goes on in American sport where... At various times in the recent past, both American football and baseball have been riddled with steroids. And the university, I think it was a university in Carolina, did a report that I got my hands on. They interviewed a load of good quality American footballers who are about to make the leap from college into the professional game. And the question I asked them, Simon, this is why I think you have to be careful, because the competitive nature of sportsmen and women, and because it's young people who, of course, believe they're indestructible. The question they were asked was, if I could guarantee you a Super Bowl ring right now, you would win a Super Bowl ring in your career, but you have to take steroids, and you would die in your 40s because you've taken the steroids. Would you do it? Would you do it? About 90% said yes, they would. Because, of course, they don't believe the consequence. They believe the reward, but not the consequence. If performance-enhancing drugs were helping footballers, we'd have an epidemic of that kind of thinking. Whether or not they'd go that far, we'd we'd have to see. Let me end it with another kind of gluttony, consumerism. I've got to be careful what we talk about gluttony and food because of the size I am. And then when we talk about consumerism, I notice you've got a watch on your wrist there, which I imagine you could land a helicopter on, and I can't imagine how much it costs. There is, a, there is something almost comical now about young footballers and the way they, they need to display their wealth. The example I always give is Stephen Ireland. Now, he's not a good example of anything, but at the time when he was lying to the Republic of Ireland about his dead grandmothers, <laughs> and I use it because he seemed to have six or seven who died to get out of going to meaningless friendlies, he was also having constructed... Um, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of it. He had a, a custom-made Hummel, you know, those great big yes, like, of course, yeah. like yeah, military yeah, jeeps yeah. with pink leather hearts on the seats and red revolving wheels and all the rest of it. It was a, a display of wealth, but also tastelessness. Yeah. Then we had Jermaine Pennant, who lost mis- an expensive mis- a Porsche, car, yeah. wasn't mis- it? Mis- car, yeah. He lost that. Yeah. Stephen Fletcher, I think it was, who'd played up there in the northeast for about a year without scoring a goal, suddenly thought it was okay to go on Instagram showing his new muscle car. Mm. Jolien Lescott, did he also accidentally tweet out a picture of his car? Yeah. I mean, listen, I kind of forgive them for this because, Good. you know, youth is wasted on the young, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when you're put in a position, it's a very difficult situation because I've oft, often looked at young players 
and thought to myself, what would I have done in their shoes? I made a lot of money when I was 31, so I could still be considered to be a, you know, a young man. Certainly, I given, think you still are young, given, Simon, Thank yeah. you, mate, young at heart. Given that the average football club chairman in the country was 65 and I was 31, there wasn't a lot of relationship between me and them. And I think ultimately, sometimes what you don't know is, you know, the sheer tonnage of what you don't know at certain ages could sink the Titanic or resink the Titanic. <laughs> and I think young players with an inordinate amount of wealth, they come in, they're 17, 18 years of age, they're catapulted from £275 a week like Victor Moses was on when he signed his contract at 17. Five years later, Victor's on £120,000 a week at Chelsea and they're still very young men and we put them in front of microphones, we expect something earth-shattering to come out of their mouths and most of the time it's mumbling drivel, it's getting better because they're getting more educated and footballers are not suffering from the stereotype of them all being dense but there's still an element of... some media training as well. Decadence and opulence. If you a media training, of course. If you're sat there and ultimately your responsibility is to train two hours or three hours a day at best, three times or four times a week, and you're getting 20, 30, 40,000 pounds. That's a poorly paid yeah. player. You're getting 50, 60, yeah, 70, 80, yeah, 90, yeah. 100,000 pound a week footballers that have sat there and what they see is what they want. They see nice cars. They see nice watches. They see nice houses. And ultimately, it is about wanting what you want in life and my mum told me once and I'm not sure how well I followed it money talks and wealth whispers so work out which one you are son even the players who are we think of them as you know very very centred Gareth Bale yeah. he had that difficult start to his career at Spurs where he was injured for the whole time if you remember yeah. and nearly got low, nearly got sold yeah. to Nottingham Forest for a pittance but Spurs rewarded him for getting back to his fitness with a much bigger contract even though he wasn't in the first team and Gus Poyet who was assistant manager at the time told me you want to talk to him that uh, the day after he got his pay rise Gareth Bale, who's a real homebody, isn't he? Pitches up at the Spurs ground in a Ferrari, right? Gus gets hold of him, and he said, it's lucky, because I won't do Gus's brilliant accent. He said, it's lucky, because I got I had two messages for him then. One, do not be bringing that to the training yeah. ground. And two, take that hair grip out of your blinking hair, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you're right, we, we should end on a positive note here. Look, sometimes during times of austerity and all the rest of it, it does look like ridiculous ostentation. But which of us if we were pulling down the kind of dough these boys are doing, sure. wouldn't occasionally say, for me, I'd be out buying Elvis Presley's old suits and yeah, things I like mean, that. I, you know? I get sick and tired of people pulling other people down. You know, I want the bottom pulled up, not the top pulled down. Yeah. You know, I think if young players are in a position where they're responsible for themselves, most of them tend to look after their families because ultimately they come from a background, a lot of them, where they need to look after their families. And I think, uh, you know, ultimately, if you're a young man... Why wouldn't you have a bit of fun, a bit of decadence? If you're not hurting anybody else, yeah. it's more prevalent in this country where people look to pull people down and ridicule them or have a slightly sniffy attitude to what people achieve. But we cannot deny now footballers are a huge wealth base that people look at now as aspirational characters rather than footballers. They look at them as serious people that make a lot of money. And I think ultimately we're seeing a slightly more sophisticated footballer. Whether they're getting paid these ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous wages or not, we, I think we are seeing a more sophisticated, more rounded group of young men coming through becoming professional footballers than we've ever seen before. I think that's uh, probably enough. I, uh, listeners, the amount of stuff they've had in that last 40 minutes, they would be gluttons if we gave them <laughs> any more. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Coming up, we're going to be picking our sinners of the week to go into our sin bin, but first is our charity bet. Based on overrounds versus all bookmakers on home, draw, away, pre-match markets on oddchecker.com, which bookmaker was the best-priced 34 out of 38 weeks in the Premier League last season? 
Marathon Bet. That's right. Before you bet, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. Join today at marathonbet.co.uk because better odds mean bigger winnings. For more info, visit marathonbet.co.uk slash landing slash odds checker. Marathon Bet operates in Great Britain under the Gambling Commission license. 18 plus begamblerware.org excludes Northern Ireland. Right now, everybody's favourite part of the Marathon Bet podcast where Simon and I prove what brilliant pundits we are <laughs> and what brilliant prognosticators we are. There's the word. Predictors of football matches. Very nicely, Marathon Bet if you three can get the results, all we've got to do is get the result of three football matches correct in the course of any weekend. They will give us the accumulated odds. It's an acre, as I understand it's called these days. And we'll give the money to our two chosen charities. More about that in a later edition. I'm delighted to say that Sam from Marathon Bet is joining us now. Hi, Sam. Hello, gents. How are you? Uh, really good. Um, I think we did. We almost pulled it off again last weekend. Uh, I certainly predicted Charlton's victory over Leeds. Then the odd thing is this is being recorded before we even know the result of our third choice from last week, the game between uh, Manchester United and Arsenal. But suffice to say, Simon's pick at Aston Villa have already gone down, so the money's out the window. But this week, we're going to get the dough for our chosen charities. Simon, you go first. What's the picture have you chosen? I've chosen a Liverpool-Leicester. I've chosen a draw. I just feel that there's a possibility that in the form that Leicester are in, despite the irrepressible nature of Liverpool, I think Brendan Rodgers is going to come and haunt his old haunt. Yeah, he'll have them well up for it, won't he? What are the odds for that one, Sam? Well, I don't know. Brendan Rodgers putting together a, a bit of a resurgence in Leicester City, like you say. It's almost like watching their title winning effort, I suppose, a few years back. I thought they were, I thought they were a bit fortunate at the weekend. It was only that one Henderson spillage that let the goal in, but you boys like the draw. Now, we're 15 to 4 on the draw, as it stands. 47 to 100 for Liverpool to win at Anfield, but you boys like the uh, like the longer price. I can't see it myself, but 15 to 4 the draw with Marathon Bet. Thanks, Sam. Now, the next game is the one happening at um, St Mary's. We've had plenty of grief on Twitter from Southampton fans by predicting that Southampton are going to lose week after week after week. And they often do, but I'm, I'm, I'm going the other way here and always trying to get some value uh, for our chosen charities. Chelsea picking up, people seem to say, under Frank Lampard and uh, their younger players doing very, very well. But I think this is one of those games I thought Southampton although they couldn't break down Spurs they played alright in London at home of course they're a much different proposition I'm going to go uh, I understand the risks involved here Sam I'm going to go for Southampton to shock Chelsea at the weekend yeah we're certainly looking for the value there Danny you know first home victory on the front line part of the weekend Brian did well kept them out and there's as many chances in the first half but deserved winners I thought the weekend they are on the road this week and you've got to look to their, uh, their last outing in the league ending in a draw was in January at Stamford Bridge. You've got to go quite a few years back to find the last time Saints beat Chelsea. March 2013, 2-1 winners at St Mary's. Ricky Lambert scoring the winner. Can they do it again this weekend, Danny? Again, I can't see it, but you like to look for a bit of value. There's 31% your best price of marathon bet to currently beat Chelsea's. OK, well, that's that's incredibly skinny. If all the stats you've just given me are true, <laughs> Southampton should be about 8-1 to one again, shouldn't they? Well, you said over there at home, there is a chance still. Oh, you're um, backing out of now. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to back Southampton this weekend, but um, but you boys looking for the value. You'll come and apologise to me next week, that. Sam. You'll apologise to me next week. What's the third bet, right. Simon? Final one. If there ever was going to be an opportunity for Newcastle players to prove the thinking that they are not where they should be and not behind their manager possibly which will start becoming out in they're the a rebel at the moment they're, they're a shower a again it's a draw that I'm going to pick I can't bring myself to go for a Newcastle win even though Man United are not great I'm going to go for Newcastle Manchester United to be a draw well as a Newcastle fan I'll keep my head um, head down a little bit for this one I thought mm. I did think we'd agree to not discuss Newcastle today but however Howler at the weekend like you said lack of spirit lack of fight lack of 
lack of everything and certainly team faithful, despite singing their way through to the end of the, uh, the, end of the game, but it's something they didn't want to see. For me, it feels a little bit like we've been in the John Carver years from where I was at, but Bruce, you could stick in now. I know you're a big fan of his, Simon. Um, yep. Who knows? Certainly coming out of the dressing room screaming and having Andy Carroll on the run, that, uh, that means he's, he's got some fight in him. On the reverse, like you said, struggling Manchester United team who look to me a bit more like a mid-table side at the moment. And you've got to go back to February last year for the last time Newcastle picked up points against Man U. And back to 2016 with a six-goal thriller that ended 3 all at St James's Park. I do hope to, for much of the same. Um, you boys like the draw. If you agree with Simon and Danny, you can back it at Marathon. They're currently best price as we so often are at 13 to 5. So what does that make for the accumulation of the three bets then? Well, big bet this weekend. So £20 stake on all of those selections will pay over just over £1,400. I'm almost certain it's going to happen. I'm almost certain it's going to happen, so it won't be a problem. Sam, thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Sam from Marathon Bet, and we're going to try and win the money for the charities. Now, Simon, and you, the listeners, this is the moment in the show. I think this is quite a difficult one this week because we uh, each week we put uh, two footballing personalities into our sin bin. By the end of this series, we'll have a squad of managers, players, etc., from which to pick. Difficult one this week because gluttony is here. In many ways, it's seen as a more difficult sin than some of the ones we've already dealt with. Look, I'll go first so that, so that you don't get accused of always leading the charge against people. And I think, <laughs> I think I'm think i going to go with Tom Huddleston in the sin bin here. Good call. Not because he's a particular, he was a bit of a lump when he played for Spurs. A really great pass for the football. I'll give him the credit for that. But obviously the people at Derby who were, we started the programme with who are in so much trouble, they could have done a bit of guidance from Tom. I think he's the team captain now and all the rest of it. But there are always those people, aren't there? There are people who get themselves into trouble yeah. and then there are people on the edge who either egg them on, or in this case, are taking photographs of someone being mm. sick in a, in a public place, in the urinals yeah, of a public, stupid. of a pub. And I thought, Tom, either be in with these guys or yeah. out of it. You know, that, yeah. that's kind of peripheral. So I'm putting Tom in the scene. It's like bin. McCavity the cat of Old Possum's Book of Cats. When the crime committed, McCavity <laughs> was not there. Um, Who are you I, putting in? I'm going to put in, I, I hate to do it, but it's a play on words. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to have to go for a glutton for punishment, which is my mate Steve Bruce, because I think what he's taken on at Newcastle with the resistance of the fans, with the toxicity towards the owner, and with what we saw yesterday, and we watched it, a group of players that are just an absolute waste of time. For Brucey, wanting to manage his hometown team, desperate to be involved with Newcastle for as long as I can remember, even when he was with me at Palace, I've got to put him into that sin bin as being a glutton for punishment. What was your book called? Be careful what you wish for. Steve Bruce is now front and centre with that, isn't he? Well, that's it for the seventh episode of this run. There'll be many more runs, I'm sure, of the Marathon Bet podcast. We've now been through the seven official deadly sins. But don't worry, fans, and don't worry, people out there, because next week, the week after that, and the week after that, Simon and I will be making up our own sins. And as Simon said, if you're dealing with something like football, it's not very hard to find sins or sinners. Thanks for listening. Marathon Bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus, begambleaware.org.